This episode is sponsored by Tenuity. Is your brand's feed even shoppable? Content and commerce are now one. Tenuity's shoppable media experts convert scrolls to sales. Rethink performance with Tenuity, the largest independent performance marketing firm across streaming TV and the triopoly of Google, Meta, and Amazon. Find out how at rethinkperformance.com. Hello, everyone, and thanks for hanging out with us for the Behind the Numbers Weekly Listen, an e-marketer podcast made possible by Tenuity. This is... Of course, the Friday show that reviews the most need to know more media and retail news stories of the week. I'm your host, Marcus Johnson. In today's show, are we cautious or optimistic about the current climate? Last year, I would have said to you, I were in a recession. This year, January 20th, I'm cautiously optimistic. Are young people spending more or less time on social media? Using a platform like Facebook for both for entertainment as well as communicating with your friends and family, I think it's a little bit more fragmented now. Where are we at with events? But at the same time, the genie that we took out of the bottle with virtual events is not going to be put back. And I think that's actually a good state of grace. Streaming TV prices go up again. Twitter ad sales fall. And we talk about a few recent and fascinating breakthroughs in science. Join me for this episode. We have three people. Let's meet them. We start with our principal analyst who heads up our digital advertising and media practice. He's based out of New York. It's Paul Werner. Great to be here. Happy New Year, everyone. Hey, chap. We're also joined by our principal analyst who heads up our retail and e-commerce team, also based out of New York. It's Susie David Canyon. Hi, everyone. Hello, hello. She's in the studio today, in studio with uh, someone else on her team who is called Blake Drosh, one of our retail analysts. Uh, He's also typically based out of New York, but is currently in the New York office. Blake, welcome. Always good to be here, Marcus. Hello. (laughs) Hello. Uh, (laughs) You could sense it, right, Susie? You could sense he didn't mean that Yeah, no, I thought he really meant it. I think he's discouraged Mm. that you introduced the winner first. This week's weekly uh, listen winner got introduced. First or last, definitely not oh. second. Uh, let's let's. Uh, let's like see I walked what we've right got. into that one. Yeah, Susie can't win today. For, well, typically she loses, but because she took about half an hour smashing up the studio before we hit record, and for that reason she is ineligible. She's such a game. rock star. That's not Trash, my fault. Trashing the studio <laughs> <laughs> with impunity. Uh, <laughs> If only. Uh, What do we have in store for you today? Three segments, as will be the case going forward. The story of the week. We'll look at the current climate of life, really. Uh, The current climate of the economy, the current climate of retail, the current climate of advertising. Do things feel more optimistic or are we more cautious about the next couple of months and the next half of the year, pretty much? Then we'll move to the game of the week. What's the point is the game we play today. Susie Blake and Paul will go head to head. Well, Blake and Paul will go head to head to try and win the uh, the championship belt. Susie will obviously. Uh, so, so watch uh, from the sidelines, and um, then uh, good thing we'll I read all the articles. Dinner party data finally. Um, it took three years. Dinner party data will be our final segment, and you know how that goes. Uh, if not, you'll we'll, you'll work it out. Anyway, let's kick things off with the story of the week. Today we're talking about the current climate. Cautious or optimistic? And like many of you, I was reading a few articles with different opinions on the current climate. Some good, some stable, some not so great. And so one of the good ones was from our very own senior retail analyst, Zach Stambor, 
saying the fabled soft landing where inflation slows and the labor market remains strong appears to be in sight based on new indicators. He was referencing the core CPI measure, which rose at 3% annualized rate in Q4, 3%. That's the slowest pace in over a year and much lower than the peak of 8% in June. So that's positive news. The stable The Civic Science Economic Sentiment Index remained steady over the holiday period and into the new year. So economic sentiment holding pretty steady. And then the not so great piece of news was also from Zach, noting that the economic storm clouds are gathering as several retailers, including Lululemon and Macy's, recently lowered their outlooks for fiscal Q4. Susie, I'll start with you. Which camp do you fall into, the good, the stable or the not so great? And which indicators um, are you paying most attention to? This was not the question I was expecting. (laughs) What question? You said you did all the reading. I did. What did you read? Victoria, do not put that part in. Okay, ready? Of course put that in. No, I'm ready to talk about it. What question were you expecting? I just thought we were going to talk about life. And so, con- life? Yeah. No, She's I, like, so, the metaverse. No, what you, I said you were going to run the show. Anyways, I'm, I'm ready to talk about it now. Sorry, oh, Victoria. I'm so sorry that you have to do so much editing in this episode. She won't have to at all. It, she has to do nothing. Cool, yeah. Susie. Tell the people what you've what you want to tell us about life. How's life? So you know what the good news is that even though I was not expecting that question, I still have a good answer for it. So <laughs> oh, it's good. totally good. Uh, you know what the thing is that we've been keeping an eye on this obviously for a long time for the last eighteen months. The inflation, stagflation, slow recession. I mean, the as you said, the headlines are mixed. People are having a tough time, and by people, I mean consumers are having a tough time understanding what are the factors that they should be thinking about? How are the metrics all interrelated? It's like an onion that gets peeled and there are so many different layers to it. So last year, I would have said to you, I were in a recession. This year, January 20th, I'm cautiously optimistic. I think that there were lots and lots of economists and strategists that talked at NRF and they all brought different points. And I think at the end of the day, it's going to be definitely a slowdown, but I don't think we're going to hit recession quite in the same way as I had thought last year. And part of that, I mean, I have so much to say on this topic, even though I obviously did not prepare in the way you thought I was going to. I do I do think the one of the biggest things to talk about, which I know that you pointed to an article that was talking about consumer confidence going down in the economy, but really there is the conference board that is one of the biggest metrics that we look at when it comes to consumer confidence. And they saw a sharp uptick in December and a bounce back. And so, like you said, there are some lagging indicators like unemployment, but all of those are so strong right now that I think it might be fine. I'm not really sure. This is a good question. Well, so, uh, thank you. That's one I posed to you yesterday. So you have plenty of time to prepare. But I mean, what question were you and Paul expecting? Name the Earth's largest ocean? What, Wait, can what did I you tell you, for? once you tell me that I've lost, then it's almost like I'm done. We're done. There's no need. What I was expecting was that we were going to spend the whole episode talking about how Macy's struggles are due to the fact that Susie left Macy's a while back to come join us. And <laughs> that's mainly. Oh my God, you're the best, Paul. 
They've been doing pretty well up until now. Well, so the unemployment rate that Susie mentioned is interesting because it's low. It's been lower than 4% since January of last year. It's been hovering around the 35 to 3.6% range every single month. So unemployment looks pretty good. Inflation, that's come down, as Zach noted. But um, if you look at just overall inflation, according to the US Bureau of Labor Statistics, it was 9% in the summer, and that's down to about 6% in December of last year. Again, that's still high. It was 5% overall in 2021, and it was about one or two percent the years preceding that. So it's still a lot higher than we're used to. And gas prices as well. They're about four or five bucks, as people well know, in the summer, and they're down closer to uh, to three. So that's another positive indicator. GDP as well. GDP in Q3 was, was up, getting us out of the recession that we saw. Uh, according to the uh, US Bureau of Economic Analysis, GDP was down 1.6% in Q1, 0.6% in Q2, and was a positive three in, in Q3. So it seems that things are better than they were, but still not as great as you'd like to see them. All this leads me to think that there should be some other measure that suggests things aren't going very well than saying we're in a recession. Because that word, you could be negative 0.1, you could be negative 1,000, it's still recession if you have two quarters of negative growth. And I think it's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. People hear recession, so they stop spending as much and it just, it continues to perpetuate. I feel like we need something similar to the Richter scale where, okay, it's an earthquake, but on what magnitude? Like, where do you, which camp do you land in in terms of where things are at the moment and what metrics are you paying most attention to? I mean, I think when you talk about a recession, it's inflation is the thing to look at because the government will essentially throw the economy into a recession to maintain the rate of inflation to keep it low or have it cool off. And I think that the reason, the biggest indicator and why people are starting to feel a little bit better is because inflation is starting to cool down naturally. So I still do think that that is, you know, from my limited knowledge of macroeconomics and how that is maintained, it seems to be the biggest indicator. But I will say that, you know, the US is not isolated. You know, we live in a global economy. And if the rest of the world continues to suffer because of the geopolitical situation with the war, then we're not going to be impervious to that in the US. And if you look at what's going on in Europe, if you look at energy and inflation, they're not in, in as good of a position as we are right now. And it doesn't necessarily mean that just because things are starting to look a better, a little bit better on our end, that we're not going to get pulled into it. So if the variables change geopolitically, that could change some of the cautious optimism that we're feeling right now. But I do agree with Susie that as of this moment, uh, you know, circumstances unchanging, I think there is more of a reason to be cautiously optimistic. Certainly certainly compared to where we were a few months ago. But to answer your question more directly, I believe it's the yield curve that economists pay attention to, to help with better understanding the like Richter scale that you're talking about. So the official definition is, like you said, the two quarters of negative GDP growth, which Mm -hmm. obviously we don't have because we had a positive one in Q3. Mm -hmm. I think the other measure that people pay a lot of attention to is the savings rate. And that is starting to come down. And the cost to borrow money is obviously, as we all know, up. And so that too is going to cause tension in where people are spending their money, which obviously impacts retailers the most. Yeah. Yeah. To Blake's point, though, it does for for consumers at least. It comes down to you know how expensive are things. How much can I spend? And wage growth is slowed, according to the Labor Department. People have less spending power. Real wages 
are down because even though inflation is so high, even if you get pay rise, this being cancelled out by inflation, according to an attest survey, six in 10 shoppers plan to pull back their spending this year. So things, even though confidence is going back up, things aren't as rosy as you'd like to see them um, at this stage. Paul, where do you land? Well, we're in a very complex time where these signals are pointing in in different directions. It's an unprecedented time because the factors that brought us here are ones that we haven't experienced all before, including, you know, a pandemic and a war and mm-hmm. the business cycles that the companies in our world, you know, at advertising, media, retail are in, which are kind of unique as well. I think in that kind of flux, what I look at most is consumer sentiment because there is this sense that perception is reality. And if people feel that, you know, they're going to have spending power or they're going to be able to keep their jobs or they're going to be able to, you know, go back to in-person events or, you know, if they're generally feeling confident about things, then that's obviously going to, you know, point the economy in a good direction when it's at that sort of tipping point between Mm -hmm. recession and not a recession. So I pay a lot of attention to that. I think that, you know, marketers are clearly trying to gauge that sentiment. And again, you know, a recession doesn't necessarily mean that marketing spend is going to go down because there are always opportunities to tap into, but, Mm -hmm. but they always depend on how people are feeling about things. So, you know, the civic science economic sentiment index that you shared with us, I thought that was telling because... You know, some of the factors are pointing downward, like confidence in personal finances. I think that gets to, you know, what Susie was saying about savings rates a bit. But, you know, confidence in making a major purchase was up. Confidence in finding a new job actually rose Mm -hmm. and buying a new home also. So these are things Mm -hmm. that we've been paying a lot of attention to because of mortgage rates going up. So, you know, the fact that these factors are holding is positive. I would definitely lean on Blake's point about the U.S. being a little different from certainly Europe right now and probably China as well. I mean, you know, China just announced that its population did not grow for the first time. That has huge implications for their economy. So, you know, the world is smaller and increasingly interconnected, but there are big differences in what we're seeing and what I think is going on in the U.K. and in Europe to your point about marketing as well, marketing spend, Insider Intelligence Director of Briefings, Jeremy Goldman, was noting that a majority of companies polled by R.R. Donnelly and Sons plan to either increase, said 54%, or maintain, said 29% of their marketing budgets this year. And yeah, if you look at our total media ad spending, to bring it back to advertising for a second, last year growth was 10%. This year, we're expecting growth of 7%. So pretty healthy, given all the hysteria, it seems to be, all the negative headlines that you seem to read. Things seem to be trending in the right direction and not quite as bad as as things may seem. That's what we've got time for for the story of the week. It's time now, of course, for the game of the week. Today's game, what's the point? Where I read out four stories and have contestants, Susie, Blake and Paul, tell us what they think is the main takeaway of the story. Okay, answers get one point, good answers get two, and answers that leave you with the same feeling as when you eat something that was cooked from scratch. Answers that leave you with that feeling, they get you three points. Each person gets 20 seconds to answer before they hear this. The bell is back! If you run long, you get a tip. Most people are like, was it ever gone? No one notices. <laughs> I don't know why I still carry this bloody thing. It's Mark Dolliver's fault. 
If you run long, you get a technical foul minus two points. Two technicals gets you ejected from the game. Whoever gets the most points wins, gets the last word. Let's play ball. That was my best American accent, and I think I nailed it. Uh, that made me extremely okay. uncomfortable. Please never do that again. I knew that was coming. <laughs> it was perfect. <clears throat> Round one. We'll start with Paul. Are young people spending more or less time on social media? According to Ellen Briggs of Morning Consult, Gen Z is extremely online. It's intense. She writes that over half of Gen Zers spend four plus hours on social media every single day. Over half of Gen Z are spending four plus hours on social media every single day, according to a new morning consult survey. That's double the US adult average. However, a recent civic science study shows that older Gen Z people, the 18 to 24 year old folks, are using social media less than their counterparts did five years ago. The share using social media over over two hours a day fell from 47% to 37% in the last five years. That's uh, Gen Z, uh, 18 to 24-year-olds, using social media over two hours a day. The share falling from 47 to 37% over the last five years. But Paul, young people spending more or less time on social media, what's the point? Well, the point is if the older half of the Gen Zers are spending a little bit less time, which the civic science data doesn't exactly say, but it suggests, then that really tells you that the younger ones are spending inordinate amounts of time because if those numbers are going up across the board for Gen Z, then it's the younger ones who are leading the charge. Blake? Um, I think it also speaks to how fragmented digital media, including social media, has become. I think there was more of a contained ecosystem of communication and entertainment with the previous generation. So using a platform like Facebook for both for entertainment as well as communicating with your friends and family, I think it's a little bit more fragmented now. People are consuming entertainment on TikTok and YouTube, but they're not chatting with friends and family on those platforms. They're using other services that they might not consider to be social media. So I think, you know, the amount of time with this new media is the same, but what they're considering to be social media, uh, the definitions might have changed a bit. Susie. So I have a different perspective on this. I think uh, Blake sort of touched on it as well. I think social media is no longer what it was created to be. It is much more about entertainment than it is about connecting. So whether they're spending more or less time, I don't know that matters as much as understanding what they're doing if you're a brand so that you can reach them. And also, it looks like now the new thing for the Gen Alpha and the younger Gen Z is about smaller communities. So it's not like one platform that every generation is going to for different reasons, but that there are going to be more and more smaller platforms and spaces, whatever that looks like, for the younger generation to come and congregate and chat and learn and be together. I just I, um, I just have to say I disagree on the point about Gen Zers not using social platforms to connect with friends. I think they do that through TikTok, through Instagram. I don't think that they're using them just for entertainment and not for connecting. So I mm. think you might like I'm, I'm not sure. I guess it just depends on how we think about connecting. I think you're right. They connect with friends. But I think what they do is send memes and reels, not like, hey, how's your day connecting? Right. It's different like, type of connection. Yeah. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. the way they're connecting is changing. Yeah. I thought it was interesting that YouTube, 
That's uh, Gen Z people's most used social platform. 88% of folks often gets forgotten about because it's social media versus social entertainment, social networking, but still social YouTube is number one for Gen Z people. 88% are saying they use that. In second place was Instagram, 76%. TikTok and Snapchat pretty much tied in third with about 68%. I did like that there was a nod to, since I've lost, I mean, I might as well take up more time. There was a nod to gaming, which I thought was really important because Web3, I know we all have different perspectives on that at uh, the company, but I do think that there is something about gaming and Roblox and Web3 that is a new way of socializing and connecting that brands, and we're seeing it more and more, that brands need to get into and obviously advertisers need to figure out as well. Yeah. Um, All right, folks, let's move on to round two. Everyone's tied up on three points heading into round two. We'll start with Blake. Where are we at with events? According to YouGov America, 77% of event leaders say virtual events are now a permanent part of their event mix. Over the next 12 months, 50% of half over the next 12 months, half of them will conduct the same number of virtual events they did in the last 12 months. A further 32%, so a third, are looking to host more virtual events. Just 1% will conduct in-person only events. But what are people looking for from a 2023 virtual event? Uniqueness was the most effective differentiator, said 48% of respondents, 45% said great content, 38% said an immersive virtual environment. But Blake, where are we at with events? What's the point? Yeah, I think virtual events have proven their worth during the pandemic. And even though in-person events have come back and are, you know, largely going to be more important than virtual, virtual is going to be an important piece of the mix for sure. I think particularly when it comes to a more diverse and comprehensive event strategy, you can have a live event as sort of the main platform and encourage as many people to travel to it as possible. But there's always going to be an audience that cannot be there physically, whether they just don't have a travel budget or there's conflicting schedule. So different components that can be put on virtually, either as a standalone or to complement it. It's like almost if you're not doing that at this point, you're, you're totally missing the mark as as an event marketer. I think just to focus on in-person events would be an ad, like an advertiser saying they're just focusing on traditional media. Hmm. Susie. It's interesting because I might be the chapter president from one of my schools here. And so we have been struggling with events. So it's interesting to see that people want events, but I don't think they're looking for like a Zoom lecture, right? They're looking for that experience that you're talking about. And so at NRF, there was this example of Tommy Hilfiger doing the New York Fashion Week runway show, both in real life but with avatars, which I didn't quite understand how the avatars were also on stage. They must have had like holograms or something, right? Plus, they were live streaming the fashion show in their Roblox game for people to watch while they were playing games. Paul. Well, we have attended big events like Advertising Week, Programmatic I.O., CES, and now NRF in person. And at those events, there was a palpable sense of almost relief from people being able to attend live events in person, which I think is great. But at the same time, the genie that we took out of the bottle with virtual events is not going to be put back. And I think that's actually a good state of grace, really, between both types of things, which, you know, both have value and both are probably going to continue into the foreseeable future. 
the halfway mark, no one able to pull ahead. It's all knotted up at five apiece. Moving to round three, we start with Susie. Streaming TV prices go up again. The first streaming price increase of the year has arrived. Live TV streaming service Fubo TV just announced its second price hike in eight months, making the cost of its standard pro plan 75 bucks a month, writes Insider Intelligence Briefings Analyst Daniel Konstantinovich. Why? Shrinking revenues are one reason, Daniel notes, but Susie, streaming TV prices going up again. What's the point? I am shocked that this is happening. This particular example you said was in the eight months they re-hiked the prices. It seems extremely untimely. Wallets are shrinking. Disposable income is less. People are worried about the discretionary purchases over non-discretionary, which you could argue for the most part, TV and regular streaming is part of that. I think they're going to erode goodwill once people's budgets are back in place. They're not necessarily going to go to these folks that are increasing prices that quickly. What I will tell you that I don't understand because it's not my space is, are these providers also doing like the Netflix multi-tiered sort of? Because like, why wouldn't you start with that? Just have different tiers available that are ad supported in different ways so that you don't have this mass exodus. Mm. Paul. I think streaming services have made two big realizations, and I, I can summarize each of those in two words. Poverty sucks and reality bites. <laughs> Bang. <laughs> Blake. I, you know, streaming services like Fubo are getting more expensive, but you're also getting more out of them these days. I think over the last couple of years, the quality has improved significantly. The availability for live sports has increased. You're basically getting with a lot of these services exactly what you can get with cable, give or take a few bundle options thrown in there like you can do with Hulu Live TV. Is it basically the same as cable now? Yes. But can you effortlessly sign up via your smart TV, cancel on a month-to-month basis and not get locked into a contract? And do you need to have a cable person come out of your house to put a, a big ugly box next to your TV? You don't have to do that either. So if it's the same price, I still think it's a better experience than cable in a lot of respects. Mm. Um. Yeah, I thought it was another interesting note in the article. When KPMG asked American adults what they would change about streaming services, lower prices were number one by a long shot. Three times as many people said price versus bundling options or shorter wait times between seasons. Uh, The second and third things people would change about streaming ad-based options to lower subscription costs were even less of a priority than that. Blake pulls ahead by one point heading into round four, the fourth and final round. Double points round four, of course. Blake. I'd also, super- I also like to throw in that I canceled Fubo the second I got this news. <laughs> Oh, did you really? So, did you really? <laughs> so I am. Yeah, I'm. A, this is a this is a prime use case for me mm. because I use it to watch the Mets, and it's the middle of the winter. And normally I would just mm. let it ride, but I was like, I'm not going to pay an extra five dollars for this. I'll wait till spring starts, and then I'll reevaluate. You know, which uh, streaming service can get me access to the Mets for the lowest price, and I'll go with that one. You know, Blake, I made the same exact decision about Fubo, and it was based on the Mets. And I switched over to a provider that does have access to SNY pretty much all the time. So I'll be able to watch Mm -hmm. local games. Save yourself some money and just assume the Mets are going to crash out of the playoffs (laughs) in spectacular fashion. Uh, Let's move to round four. four. Double points round four. We start with Paul. Twitter ad sales plunged 46%. 
as brands fled Twitter during its first days under new ownership and moved money to rivals such as TikTok and Pinterest, writes Garrett Sloan of AdAge. This near 50% drop in Twitter ad sales was an anomaly versus the rest of the social media ad market, according to Standard Media Index. Mr. Sloan notes, Standard Media Index's analysis tracks monthly invoices of the major media holding companies and top independent ad agencies. The data is limited, he admits, to just brands that spend through those firms. So it does not include 100% of Twitter's advertisers. However, based on this analysis, ad spend on social was down 2% overall. Twitter, however, was down, as I mentioned, 46%. Meta down 4, Snap up 2, Pinterest up 13, and TikTok up over 70%, 7-0. But Paul, Twitter ad sales plunging 46% in November. What's the point? Well, I think we all knew that November was a dumpster fire for Twitter. So the real question is what happens from here? And I think that data like Standard Media Index will be really important when we see the data for December and January, largely because Twitter is no longer reporting this data as a private company now. So it'll be really interesting to see. But I I don't think that Twitter has bounced back in any significant way since this happened. So I think we're looking at a prolonged problem for Twitter. Blake. Yeah, I think that the news over the last couple of months really forced advertisers to reassess whether or not Twitter was a vital avenue for digital advertising. Uh, And as many of our analysts here have speculated over the last couple of months is that it's just flat out not. There are other more valuable properties where advertisers can reallocate their spend and be just as effective or perhaps even more effective. So if a lot of that spend was just sort of lying dormant for a while and was unprovoked. Whether or not you know Twitter is a place that they want to be, this gave a lot of advertisers a reason to have a second look. Mm. Susie? I don't even know why we're still talking about this. What not it like we all knew this was going to happen? We shouldn't be surprised. I think from the study or the, it's not a study, it's from actual data. I was pleasantly surprised that Pinterest ad dollars are up by 12%, 13% maybe. And I think it's because it's a great platform for retailers and brands. People are already coming there to get inspiration. So it's like a warm lead. They're ready to go. And like Blake said, you know, there's a certain budget. You have to allocate it against the marketing vehicles that are best suited to your brand. And Twitter clearly right now is not that place. So brands are looking for other places to go. I'm going to vote with Pinterest. They're probably not the biggest user base, probably a good group of people that are already engaged. Hmm. Two not so good indicators for Twitter. Nicole McKernan, Director of Advertising Insights at Standard Media Index, pointed out that November is typically a a top three month in terms of ad spend for Twitter. So um, that's not great. That was pointed out in the Ad Age article. And then number two, Standard Media Index said that it, it has not seen such a precipitous withdrawal from a platform since July 2020, when Facebook was in the midst of an advertiser boycott. Another not so good sign. Um, all right, let's move to this final scores at the end of the game. And it is, of course, not Susie. Obviously. Or Paul either, unfortunately. Blake, congratulations to you, sir. You win the championship belt. Wow, it's been a long time. It has. 12 points for Blake. Susie and Paul tied with 11 apiece in in second. Uh, but Blake gets the championship belt and also the last word. 
Well, it's not just nice to know that I won because Marcus personally just doesn't like me. So based on my merit and my really, really insightful answers, that had to be the only reason why, Mm -hmm. because, uh, you know, I've just come on and bother Marcus basically every week. So there's Mm -hmm. no reason for him to give it to me. Uh, But anyways, I'll I'll say that uh, I'm very much looking forward to there's a new Netflix documentary coming out in February. And since there's no way I'll win again before that airs, I will say that there's a golf documentary called Full Swing coming out. Okay, that's Victoria, you can from play, him this, off, play him off it, with some music. We can just it's play it's basically going to be like <laughs> Drive to Survive. Same. It's from the same it producers, the same. but for the PGA Uh-oh. Tour. Oh. So for everyone out oh, there who says that golf is, you know, boring and uncool, you know, wait till it's elevated to the excitement levels that of uh, Formula One and Drive to Survive bring. And I think it's going to be really good for, you know, growing the sport. Will it? Will it? Maybe, maybe, maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> but I'm, I, I'm looking forward to watching. <laughs> that makes one. Did you put the belt back, Susie, after you stole it? Stu didn't let me leave with it. Very nice. Good. Thank Stu you, Stu. Stu is well a played. good guard. Part-time security guard. Thank you. <laughs> but he did tell me he would make. Oh, well, not he. Not he would have yet. his so his close. child make me a belt. His son, Jordan. Is that what he said? He didn't say that at well, all. Well, now he's you shaking his head. But yeah, he, okay. I'm pretty so sure he no. said. Mm. Jordan they were made me a belt for winning. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there's no participation no, belts no, that go around yeah. here. Either that would be an unofficial, non-sanctioned belt. Yeah. Yeah, um, it would be means. Every millennial and Gen Zer gets a participation belt. Look, Susie. I know. Shame. I'm being taunted with Paul's belt right now. Stu is showing it to us outside. <laughs> taunting. He's Don't not even look showing. At Don't even look taunting. at it. Uh, let's move on. We've got to move on. It's dinner party data. It's the part of the show where we tell you about the most interesting thing that we've learned this week. We start with Blake because he won. Blake, what you got? So there are a number of factors, not just, you know, inflation and economic uncertainty that contribute to the demand for different size packaging. And a lot of it has to do with basically is how big is the U.S. household and how many people, you know, could, might one individual be shopping for, which made me realize that I don't really know anything about, you know, U.S. households by size. And I was really shocked to learn just looking it up from census data that the average Average U.S. household size is 2.5, so 2.5 people per household, and that is down. It's been decreasing since the 60s, but it's only down from 3.3 in 1960. So 1960, 3.3, it went up a little bit for the first time in 2020 after a long downward trend, but it only went from 2.52 to 2.53 from 2019 to 2020. But overall, just surprised that households are are that small. And I think, you know, just Mm -hmm. as people are having less kids, kids move out, you know, earlier, they don't tend to not stick around until they're, you know, they're married or they're on their feet like they maybe once did. This the size of the uh, of the American household is getting smaller for many reasons. But I think it's very fascinating. Single person households, older folks. Yeah. People moving uh, urbanization as well. People moving, you know, into cities and therefore living in smaller Mm. inhabitants. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Fascinating. Very good. Paul, what you got for us? I was actually wondering if COVID may have slightly reversed that household number with people moving back with their parents, at least temporarily. 
It'd be interesting. It did, to... yeah, it did, but very slightly. Okay. There was a mm. slight increase 2019 to 2020, but it's been going back down since. Okay. Um, well, what I have is a story about how all publicity is good publicity. If y'all recall, speaking of the dreaded COVID at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, once it was established that we were going to call it coronavirus, Corona beer, you know, was obviously not a beneficiary of that association or, or so we thought. But in retrospect, in looking at some data that was cited in Marketplace, which is an American public media show that many of us analysts are on regularly. So shout out to Marketplace. But Corona Beer actually has benefited quite significantly from all of that awareness and publicity to the point that each new positive COVID case actually led to a $5.30 increase in weekly Corona Beer sales compared <laughs> to other major brands. And I guess the moral of the story is that even though there's a sort of like negative association or annoyance that comes from, you know, basically pounding people with branding messages, at the end of the day, it's really all about memory. And there's a great quote from this article. It says, frequent mention of your brand name, even in association with a disease, will result in better memory for your brand. So while the negative association will quickly decay, the brand memory will linger. So huh. raise a corona to that one. Awareness is awareness. Yep. Did you know that the, the latest COVID variant is called the Kraken? I didn't know that. Wait, no. Is there something <laughs> that is a Kraken? Kraken is a rum brand and they're not a very well-known one, but they're out there. So they should get ready. They should start producing more rum because if, if, yep, if this Kraken variant yep. takes off, then huh. there will be that <laughs> correlation. <laughs> wow. Uh, Susie, what you got for us? So me too, I got inspired by the NRF when I was walking. I don't know if Blake, you saw, but when I was walking the innovation area and then the startup section, there were a few different companies that were talking about food waste management. So I wanted to look at that. And I mean, obviously, food waste is important for people who there are so many people who are hungry. So obviously, it's important for that. But from a dollar and cents perspective, it's also important because it takes a lot of resources to produce the food to begin with. Just think about all the water they're using. But it also, I didn't realize there's so much food in landfills and that also produces greenhouse gas emission. Mm. And obviously, all of that impacts the bottom line. So... The United Nations has the Environment Program, and they do an index on food waste. And I looked up the 2021, which is the latest one that was available. There are an estimated, can you guys guess how many million metric tons of food end up in the trash every year around the world? I don't know how many tons, but it's something like 40% of the contents of landfills are food, yes. most of which can be composted. But I don't know how many right? metric tons. Yes. It's definitely, I saw something like that. Uh, that's not the wow, number. Cool. I, I don't have that. What I have is it's 931 million metric tons of food end up in trash. And just to put it in perspective, because, you know, we don't always talk in metric ton. That's about 2,200 pounds. So I didn't do the math, but we could do the math of 2,200 times 931 million. I mean, that's just absurdly. That's a lot. Yeah, it's absurd. 
the FDA has a number, they say about 30 to 40% of all the food produced in yeah. America yes. yeah. or food produced is wasted, which yes. is hor- horrifying. But then when you look at most plates that go back into the kitchen, if you've been at a restaurant or, you know, people clearing plates at home, it's about 30 to 40% yes. of what you have on your plate. So well, that and checks out. So I, I did the, like the next layer of that onion that we love talking about in terms of like mm-hmm. digging deeper. So 60% comes from household waste. Then the balance is from food service, mm. so restaurant, mm. and then the retail sector, so I'm guessing it's grocery stores. On yeah. a per capita basis, each household globally, now obviously it matters where you are, wastes 165 pounds of food each year. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's a lot. It is a lot. That's absolutely fascinating. I think the pro- one of the problems, though, at least for me, is that, yeah, a lot of the time the numbers that we're citing, they are in metric tons or in the, they're in things, they're in measurements that people can't really comprehend. Yeah. Um, whereas if you made it into dollars, if you said each family wastes this many dollars, then they'd be like, oh, I would like to save money, so I will stop wasting. So similar to climate change, where people say, well, the scientists, a lot of the time, the reports come out and say temperatures increasing by one or two degrees, which is catastrophic, but people can't comprehend one or two degrees. One or two degrees in daily temperature fluctuation doesn't really equate to a lot. So it's hard to wrap your head around the size of the problem when we're not talking in measurements that are relatable a lot of the time. Um, Very good. Very good. Especially since we're so terrible at the metric system here in the US. So when you say metric tons, people just suddenly completely tune out. Give me it in pounds. Give me a regular ton, damn it. No, not to be not to be super like into the weeds, but I think part of the issue is that everything costs different. So that's why they do it by weight. Like in every country, things cost different. So they do it yep. by weight. Fascinating numbers, folks. I got one for you real quick or a couple of numbers uh, related to a few recent breakthroughs in science. So I wanted to talk about a recent article by Mark Bellin of Visual Capitalist, who a few weeks ago wrote about the most important science headlines of 2022. And I want to talk about this because there's so much bad news. It's basically all Bad news, it seems, negative news. And so um, there were some pretty cool things that happened in the world of science last year. And so here are a few of them. In January 20th, UNESCO announces a major new three-kilometer coral reef discovered off the coast of Tahiti in the Pacific Ocean. Uh, Another one, January 26th, laparoscopic surgery was performed entirely by a robot for the first time. March 30th, the farthest star ever recorded was discovered 13 million light years away. One light year is 6 trillion miles. So it's far, it's far away. April 1st, researchers finished sequencing the roughly 3 billion bases or letters of DNA that make up the human genome. This is important because having a complete gap-free sequence of our DNA is critical for understanding human genomic variation and genetic contributions to certain diseases. August 11th, a cornea made from pig skin was shown to restore vision in blind people. And final one here, September 26th, as part of a planetary defense strategy, NASA crashed a spacecraft into an asteroid to alter its orbit. This test showed humanity's ability to protect Earth from a potentially catastrophic collision with an asteroid. Why didn't I know about this? I feel like this is... It should have made the news that they crashed about that. That was the only one that I had heard. What about about fusion? Wasn't that the biggest science story of the year? What was that, Paul? We achieved um, some kind of breakthrough with fusion. Possibly. Mm. I didn't. There's a chance I missed a few, but these were a few that I found. Possibly that was one. I just feel like if they're crashing stuff into asteroids above Earth, this was like millions of miles away, so we're fine. But 
Yeah, very Independence Day, which I, it was pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, well, Independence Day was aliens, but just knowing that we can protect ourselves just in case something goes bad, feel good about it. That's what we've got time for for this episode. Thank you so much to my guests for hanging out today. We thank Susie. Thanks for having me. Thank you to Paul. Always a pleasure, even when you lose. Thank you to Blake. <laughs> good to be here, as always. This week's winner of the Game of the Week. Thank you to Victoria, who edits the show. James, who copy edits it. And Stuart, who runs the team. Keeps Susie away from the belt. Thanks to everyone listening. You can head to Behind the Numbers underscore podcast. Behind the Numbers underscore podcast for our brand new behind the scenes segment. It's called The James Question, where as part of our team meeting, we ask James, who's on the team, uh, a question, an existential question. And he gives often, pretty much always, hilarious answers. Uh, we'll see you guys on Monday for the Behind the Numbers Daily, an e-marketer podcast made possible by Tenuity. Happy weekends. It's weird. Could just oh, be yes. Zoom. It's service. Give me, okay. yeah, I see what is happening. It's picked up a different Wi-Fi network. Give me one second. I might freeze it. <laughs> That's minus three. Just randomly one. Wow. That, just giving the host a minus three. I like that. That's a good new technique. Yeah, we, we, should, we should start. I already yeah. lost, so I don't even know why <laughs> okay. I wouldn't bother. Hello? He's gone, so he doesn't even hear this. Can you guys hear me? Yeah, yeah. Susie just uh, deducted three points from your score, Marcus, for a Wi-Fi infraction. <laughs> I already lost, Marcus, so it's fine. I can yeah. I can make up my own rules. You do know I'm just not like playing. you do. I okay. do, but all right, it's so fine. Actually, ne- negative. Yeah, that's like saying the referee scored no points. <laughs> um, typically, you're the referee. You're not even refing. Typically, that's I, that's literally my job. That's the, the whole Hello. thing I'm doing is yep, um, officiating <laughs> the the game. 